Over the summer, I've had a chance to sit in the mornings and reflect over the work that God is doing in our church. And every time I do this, I, I, I never think about um, how many or how much. I think about uh, what kind. I, I think about what kind of a, of a, of a person uh, are we actually making in our church. What are they believing? Who are they listening to? What are they quoting when they get into an argument? You guys argue, don't you? Uh, so I look for the kind of disciple that we're making. Dallas Willard said a disciple is simply someone who has chosen to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to be able to do what that person does or to become what that person is. Another way to think of it is a disciple uh, is someone who has an inner Christ-likeness so they easily and routinely do the things that Jesus taught us to do. Are you there? You were waiting for a joke, weren't you? So I wonder whether or not, or to what degree, that we're producing as a church that kind of a person. I have a hunch as we go further into exile, that is what will mark uh, the exceptional churches. It will not be the show that they put on the platform. It will not be how interesting their speaker is on a Sunday morning. It will not be the number of people in the audiences. It will not be the number of churches that they've planted, and it will not be even the number of people that have gotten, quote-unquote, saved. What will mark exceptional churches is what it means in that church to be saved. What is their gospel? What kind of people are they producing? Because those are the people that God is seeding the world with. Now, in my thinking, uh, I discovered that the people in our church, a lot of us are growing remarkably. Uh, and I'm really impressed. I would tell stories, except that it might identify some of you, and I don't have your permission to do that. But I hear stories after week after week of how God is changing people's lives, and every time I do, my heart is thrilled to see that. It's never in the big ways. It's always quiet, hidden places. You're never the one telling me somebody else told on you, and it's beautiful when you see that. What I've noticed is that, um, that people uh, in our church and probably in, in the, the history of the church, certainly in the Bible, tend to grow according to two models. One is that disciples are made, and the other is that disciples are born. You may remember that statement in the Nicene Creed, speaking of Jesus, the Son of God, begotten, not made. So there are two ways to get something into this world. One is to create it, 
and the other is to birth it. And these seem to me two entirely different ways, almost different schools of thought. They're both valid. They both have precedence in the Bible. They're both capable of producing really great disciples. But you probably lean toward either being a disciple that is made or a disciple that is born. You probably can't be them both, at least not at the same time. When something is made, you make it. You envision it. You describe it in your mind, what you want it to be. Then you set about designing a process that is capable of making that thing a reality. You start with big results. You break that down into strategic initiatives. Some of you leadership people are like, now you're talking finally. You got educated. I've just read these words. I don't have a clue what they mean. <laughs> then you break those initiatives down into a series of daily habits that are capable of being repeated again and again until they become instinctual because you know that your life is the sum of its hours. You can't spend your hours one way and your life another. And your hours are spent working your habits. So you know if you want a better life, you have to develop better habits. Preach, man. You seek a mentor, a coach generally is what that mentor does for you. That mentor assesses you. He designs a program that you can do again and again. He teaches you to focus. And then over time, you start to see your life take the shape of the thing you imagined. And when it works, it's beautiful. Now, if you're in higher education, this is how you think. And if you're in athletics, this is how you think. You don't just hope you win a championship. You design initiatives capable of winning a championship. If you're in leadership, this is how you think. You don't just wander around and hope something good happens. You design the mechanisms for producing the thing you want to see happen, and then God will bless it. Most of you, I think, are like me in that you favor this model. This model has done wonders in my life. I used to just pray for God to throw my sins out the upstairs window. Then I learned one day you have to coax them down the stairs a step at a time. And that takes a plan and effort. 
So for all of you people uh, who, who say disciples are made, kudos to you. There are a few in the congregation who are a little more mystical than that. You're a problem. You know that? You believe that um, disciples are not just made, they're born. They're born of God. In fact, the life that they have in them is never self-generated or it's fake. The life that they have comes from the vine. So this model is not all about planning and strategizing habits. This model uh, is more about patience. The first one is all about vision. I have a vision for the kind of person I want to become. Forgetting those things which are behind and straining toward those things which are before me, I press on toward the high calling for which Christ has called me heavenward. That's vision. I didn't hear an amen. I'm shocked at that. Uh, But this one is all about promises. The peculiarity about something when it's born is that it forms itself. And the waiting for it to happen is the actual period when that thing is born. So, if disciples are born and you try to make them, you'll kill them. You can't bake a cake faster by turning up the heat. You cook the outside, but the inside's still gooey. I can't pick the little tomato from the vine that my wife planted because I want a tomato tonight. If I pick it early, I'll kill it. I can't move my money from one fund to another fund every time I get nervous and I want to get even richer because if I do, I'm actually undermining the compounded interest. Are you with me? If I induce labor because I want to have the child in three months instead of nine months, I'll kill it. Now you can see why these two models are almost contrary to one another because in the first model, when disciples are made, the last thing you want is to be content. I mean, if you're content, you're just laying around. But if disciples are born, then the last thing you want is discontent. 
because discontent will make you fidgety and nervous and impetuous, impulsive, and you will jump from one thing to the next like some of us are doing. Well, that book wasn't interesting. Read another one. That preacher, that church, and they bounce around looking for some kind of spiritual steroid in order to get better faster. That is quiet in here today. I've either lost you or you're thinking, what's the problem? The problem uh, is that you can't be both at the same time. And the problem is that you never get to pick which one you're going to be. It picks you. For some of you in the room right now, you need to think of the church as a fitness center. And, and stop thinking that just because I show up, I'm going to grow. Watch my head. You, you need to think of the church as a fitness center and the different programs as like apparatus or machines. So you don't, you don't know what you're supposed to use in that church until you have a vision for the kind of person that you think God wants you to be. And then you simply find the program or the leader or the mentor that will help you develop that and you work it habit after habit after habit and you will get stronger. You will build that muscle. You tracking? But for some of you, so, so, so your problem is you're too content. That's where I'm going. Others of you this morning, you have been grinding it out every week and you're not seeing the results and you're getting frustrated. And so maybe you need to think of the church as a garden where things grow slowly, quietly, hidden. You're not building muscle. You're deepening roots. And that's okay because once your roots are down and they're solid, man, the day's gonna come where you're just gonna shoot up a ton of fruit and nobody will see the hard, invisible work. So your problem is discontent. Psalm 130 and 131, I think, are written for people who are addicted to the first model but they're stuck in the second one. You've been doing the same devotions for years and they're not producing the same results. You've done everything that you know God told you to do and you are not yet getting what he said you would get. 
So for some of you, it feels like the return on investment, which is huge with people in Model 1, is really low. And you're starting to wonder if it's worth it. Some of you, um, you were growing really fast when you started in your Christian life, and then um, a bunch of stuff happened. It's stuff that you couldn't plan. It won't happen again because it's a one in a million. But it happened and it set you back. And then right when you started to get over that, another thing happened. And right when you started to get on your feet, another thing happened. And your life just feels to you like a series of unplanned, unforeseen crises. Somebody said, cheer up, things could get worse. You're cheered up, and they got worse. Uh, I was talking to uh, Stormy and Connor. They just took their son up to uh, Holland a couple weeks ago, uh, and they introduced him to his first sand dune. Uh, If you've never climbed one before, uh, it's this hill that you want to conquer and then when you start to climb a sand dune you take one foot forward and you slide down two feet they could have said get used to this son because that's life you take one big leap and then down you go you take another one I mean it will take you if you start now you will get to the top of that dune by the time you retire then build a house up there You better not come down again. And that's how it feels for some of you. It's just been one forward, two back. For some of you, you're in a period in your life right now when God is silent. You haven't heard anything at all. And he's not doing what he said he would do. But you won't tell anybody. Do I have your attention? Psalm 130 is a song of ascent. What that means is um, the people of Israel sang the song while they were marching toward Jerusalem. See, not everybody lived in Jerusalem like everybody lives in Marion. So they had to go to Jerusalem at least one time a year, and they would make this a planned trip, and they would travel several days on foot to get there because they believed that when you got into Jerusalem, the presence of God was physically manifested inside the holy place of the temple. So the closer you got to Jerusalem, the closer you were getting to the actual physical, tangible presence of God. Now, naturally, Jerusalem was built on a high hill. And so wherever you lived out here, you were always climbing geographically in order to get into the city. And then once in the city, in the furthermost corner where the temple was located, it would be even higher yet. And so these became known as songs of ascent. That is, while the congregation has started out in their villages and they are moving slowly in the direction of the presence of God, they would start singing together collectively these songs of ascent. We, we can't prove this, but this is the theory. And there's, there's, there's 15 of them. Some people say one for each step. 
that climbed into the, we can't prove that either. But so as the people of God are moving towards God, they're singing songs that are getting them ready to enter the presence of God. This is one of those songs. And if you look at Psalm 130, it starts in the depths. He starts by saying, out of the depths, I cried to you, which is used in different places in the Old Testament. And wherever it is used, it has the same connotation. It's a place where there is no footing. It's a place of high turbulence and high stress. And Derek Kidner says, whatever we know of the depths in the Bible, we know for sure that self-help was never the way out of it. You've tried that. Now in the depths, way out here, my heart cries out to God. That's verse one. And what he's looking for is forgiveness. Verse four, he says, God will forgive me because that's the kind of God he is. Augustine wrote that on the walls of the room in which he died. In you, there is forgiveness. Wesley went uh, to a service in St. Paul's church and heard the song from verse four. In you, there is forgiveness. And later that night, his heart was strangely warmed. Boy, something happens, people, when you start out in the depths and halfway in your journey, you find the forgiveness of God. You are released. Gosh, that feels good. But keep reading. The end of the psalm, verse 7, is talking about a place of full redemption. So you start to see it, don't you? I start all the way out here in the depths, in the lowest possible place, and I am moving steadily toward full redemption. But I'm not there yet. Here's where the psalm turns. Right in the middle of the psalm, verse six and seven, look at it. He talks about waiting, waiting. Put it on the screen. I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. The idea is this is not a season in your life where you're pressing something and making something happen. This is a season in your life when something is being born and you're waiting for it to happen. And if you act too quickly or you hurry it, you'll abort it. So what does it mean to wait well? Have you ever been to a waiting room, the ER I mean, and looked around? People are fidgety. They're nervous. Every time the nurse comes out, calls the name, they sit up because they think it's their name. 
and then they lean back. And when people are fidgety and nervous, they do different things, don't they? Some people watch TV. Some people get real angry. They start shouting things at other people. Their disposition changes. Some people get terribly bored. The longer they sit there, people start letting go of any hope whatsoever that there's even a doctor back there. And that's when they fall asleep. Sometimes when the nurse comes out and calls their name, they don't even hear it. Because now they're so accustomed to their name not being called, they couldn't possibly imagine. Christians wait in about the same way. The moment God makes a promise to somebody, their hopes go way up. God's going to do this. (laughs) We'll have it by supper tonight. The problem is, God who is eternal almost, no, that's not right, actually never works that way. And he causes people to wait, and the more we wait, the more fidgety we get. Some of us get terribly distracted chasing our careers, chasing our families, chasing our own thoughts, for crying out loud, chasing money, chasing success. Some of us get angry and cynical and sarcastic and we start making bombastic statements about religion, flippish things. Most of us just get bored and we settle back in the waiting room. And then we start to think, well, it will get here when it gets here. And this is total disengagement which is not the kind of waiting the psalmist is talking about at all. The waiting he's talking about is pictured in two ways. So I thought I'd give you two pictures instead of give you two instructions. One way is to wait like a watchman waits on a wall. He has the midnight shift. No one is looking. But he's leaning forward. He's vigilant. He's focused. But he knows the difference between things he can control, which is his job, and things he can't control, which is how fast the morning gets here. So he has found a way to stay occupied even though his occupation is not really hurrying the thing (laughs) he's waiting for. You can't say to a watchman, if you're bored, son, make a morning. He can't. But he can stay awake in the night and he can do his job. And he can learn to flourish in boredom. If you're waiting for God to fulfill a promise he made to you and you are somewhere between the depths where you started and full redemption where you're going, learn the art of loving boredom. Some of you are addicted to adrenaline. You're addicted to revival. You got to have another one every other week. You're addicted 
to simple, easy answers. And the fact of the matter is, most good answers aren't simple and they're not easy. Get used to minutia. Learn to love doing things nobody can see in the middle of the night. In fact, learn to do things for their own merit and not because they produce anything. You're too addicted to results. Dude, you are too discontent. Yes? The second picture I want you to picture is a mother, Psalm 131, who holds a weaned child next to her breast. Kidner says, weaned, I should say, no longer striving for the very thing that was once indispensable. (laughs) So the child is content while the mother just holds it. So if the picture of the watchman is to stand on the wall in the night and do with meticulous care and perfection the thing that is in front of you and entrust the future entirely to God, then the picture of waiting in the mother is to lean on the mother's arms and you are known then not for your vision but for your conspicuous lack of vision. What makes you so attractive as a child in the mother's arms is that you will simply use whatever's available. You're not trying to pre-wire or determine the way everything is going to turn out. You can't. You just wait for someone in the room to hold you. So your beauty is not your resourcefulness or your cleverness. It's your vulnerability and your innocence. You simply live off of people who want to hold you, which oddly enough is everyone in the room. (laughs) You're not making things happen. It's that you don't make things happen that makes you so attractive. This morning, I think uh, there are people in the room right now that don't have a promise from God. I'm, I don't know what to say to you, actually, uh, because you can't invent a promise because you need one. But I can tell you this. God has been talking a long time. And people, he's written a lot of it down. And the more familiar you become with the scripture, the more likely you are to run into a promise. 
I can tell you where I stood by the river when the Lord said to me, I will make you holy. Because I knew I wasn't. This is what he said. I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you so that you desire by nature, your instinct will be to do what pleases me. And you will be my son and I will be your God. And something happened that night. I lost about a billion pounds because I grew up in a holiness tradition that always thought of holiness as a command, not as something born. (laughs) No, no, in my church, we made people holy. But here was a God saying, just carry it. When it's time, you'll birth it. Man, that felt good. So if you are not accustomed to hearing promises, I assure you God has made one and it comes very near something that you want badly in your soul. Whether you know the word of God or not, you want your life to get better, not worse.